0: Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. Um, No guilt in life, no fear in death. Uh, It is amazing that by God's grace we can make such a statement. Um, What what a joy it is that we can come and and praise our Lord who is King, who was, who is, and who is to come. Uh, let, Let us never lose the appreciation of what it is God has has given us the opportunity to do as his children, to praise him, to be part of his family, uh, and to remember today all that he's done for us. Last week, we started talking about the importance and significance of the Lord's Supper. We saw in Acts 2 that it is something that the early church devoted themselves to, continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. We saw that it's something there in 1 Corinthians 11, as as Luke just read to us, that is vital to our spiritual growth and well-being. That when we aren't properly remembering the things that we need to within the Lord's Supper, that it's going to hurt our relationship with the Lord, that we may even be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We saw that in contrast to the many festivals and Sabbaths and memorial feasts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything that God wants his children to remember is wrapped up in one memorial feast, one continual memorial feast. And we looked at two aspects of that last week. The aspect of a memorial feast kind of uh, paralleling the Passover of the Old Testament How just as Israel memorialized God's deliverance of them out of bondage in Egypt, God has instructed us to memorialize our release from bondage to sin and to guilt. And just as God brought them out with a strong hand through the death of the firstborn, God has released us from our bondage through the death of his firstborn. We talked about the idea of a sacrificial meal. That in the body and the blood, we're using the language of sacrifice. And in partaking of this sacrificial meal, we are declaring our participation in the sacrifice of Christ. We are reminded that we are the one who put this sacrifice on the altar of the cross. And that this blood is for our atonement and our cleansing. And more than that, that we are able to take in the life-giving blood of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. But the significance and importance of the Lord's Supper doesn't end there. Uh, and it certainly won't end even at the end of this sermon. There, there are many, many things that we could talk about. But I want to focus on two other aspects today of this Lord's Supper meal. The first that I want us to consider is the idea of it being a covenant meal. Uh, in the passage that Luke just read here in 1 Corinthians 11, you notice there in verse 25, said, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What, What does Jesus mean when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood? In Matthew's account, in Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28, we have Jesus there also saying, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? The new covenant in his blood or the blood of the covenant? Well, probably first, we need to understand what the word covenant means, if we're going to understand this concept. Covenant is not really a word that we use in everyday conversation today. Uh, For many, it's kind of a Bible word, the word covenant. In fact, actually, just yesterday, Aaron and I were studying with a couple, and they were reading through some Old Testament passages, uh, and they were reading out of the CEV. And when they came to the word covenant, it just said agreement. Uh, maybe in modern language, agreement might be something that we understand a little bit more. However, I think it kind of comes short of giving us the full impact of the word covenant. Merriam-Webster defines covenant as a, a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement. So yes, it's an agreement, but, but specifically the word covenant gives us this idea that it's very solemn and binding agreement. Uh, In our modern experience, probably the best example for us is the covenant of marriage. Now, our society has made that less solemn and less binding than it really should be. But we understand the concept of till death do us part. That's the type of covenant that we're talking about here. Uh, Maybe a a more temporary example that we could consider uh, is something like somebody taking the oath of enlistment and going into the military. This isn't something that somebody takes lightly. This is them fully committing themselves, being all in, and making a commitment that has deep and abiding responsibilities associated with it. But also a commitment that certainly has great blessings and privileges. But if we think that somebody's oath to the military uh, is something that's solemn and binding, if, if we think, and certainly rightly so, that, that marriage is solemn and binding... How much more when we're making a covenant directly with Almighty God? We need to recognize just how serious this covenant is. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia talks about four major aspects of ancient covenants or of Old Testament covenants. Uh, it talks about a statement of the covenant term, so laws and promises, in this covenant, laws are obligation to God in this covenant, promises God's uh, agreement to bless us in this covenant. Two, an oath or commitment to the covenant. Three, a curse on those who violate the covenant. If you read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you can see this in the Old Testament, the curses and the blessings. But then the fourth aspect and final, he says, an external act of ratification. I think what we'll see is that throughout the Old Testament, covenants were often ratified or sealed through a sacrificial meal. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, I think this may be kind of the first time that we see this idea of a covenant being sealed through sacrifice. And we're going to start at reading in verse 7. Here God has reiterated his promise to Abraham that his descendants are going to become as the the, uh, sands upon the sea or the the dirt upon the earth. And then he says there in uh, verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came on uh, down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And then we see that God here reiterates his promise that your descendants are going to uh, spend time in a foreign land. Uh, for 400 years, but they are eventually going to come up and possess this land once the iniquity of the Amorite is full. And then notice what then happens in verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so here, God makes this covenant with Abraham, but, but how does he do it? What, what's the external act of ratification here? Uh, it says that in the, the form of a, of a smoking Pot or or a, a flaming torch, God symbolically kind of passes through these pieces of sacrificed animals, right? He had split the animals and put them on either side, and now God, in the form of this fire, is passing through. And in fact, there in verse 18, when it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, literally that word is he cut a covenant. And in fact, many, many times throughout the Old Testament when it says God made a covenant, it uses the phrase, he cut a covenant. What does that mean, that he cut a covenant? Well, I think we, we start getting the picture here with Abram cutting these animals in half and putting them on either side. But let, let's look at Jeremiah 34 where we see the same practice spoken of. Jeremiah 34 where King Zedekiah uh, makes a covenant before the Lord with the people, and they don't honor that covenant, notice what God says to them in verse 18 and 19. It says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. There we see that same thing being referred to that, that God symbolically had done himself in passing through those pieces of the sacrificed animal. And we can see that the, the idea here in Jeremiah 34, and this is confirmed in many other ancient documents of covenants being made uh, in the ancient world, is that this sacrifice was a reminder of of the commitment that they were making and and made it much more solemn that if I don't keep this covenant, may I be like one of these animals. May I be slain like one of these animals. That's exactly what God is saying here to the people of Israel because they have not kept the covenant because they have violated it, that they will become like the calf cut into. And yet God lowers himself to give that kind of assurance to Abram there in Genesis 15. Um, but the sacrifice was a reminder of the seriousness of the commitment being made. Uh, they were in essence committing that if they violated the covenant, they would take the sacrifice's place. If you want to turn forward to Genesis chapter 31, again we see the idea of a covenant being made through sacrifice. But here, the meal aspect of this sacrifice is is has a greater emphasis here in Genesis 31 Jacob makes a covenant with Laban and in verse 51 it says then Laban said to Jacob see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm the God of Abraham the God of Nahor the God of their fathers judge between us so Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Okay, so they make this covenant, this agreement, this solemn agreement that they are going to be at peace with one another. That they are are never, and their descendants are are never going to uh, fight against one another. But how do they kind of ratify that covenant? Well, it says that Jacob made a sacrifice before the Lord. And that they then join in eating together. Uh, It says they eat bread or eat food, presumably including that sacrifice itself. And so once again, you see a covenant being made through the sharing in this sacrifice. Recognizing the solemnity of the commitment that they were making uh, through that sacrifice. And that brings us to the passage that I think most strongly connects with this idea in the Lord's Supper, and that's Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, we see God's covenant with the nation of Israel. And we see the external act of ratification here. Uh, as they uh, are at Mount Sinai. Here in Exodus 24, starting in verse 4, if you'll read with me, it says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's stop there for a moment. Do You see what's going on here? they come to Mount Sinai. God's given them the terms of the covenant, the law. God's promised that they will be his people. And now they make this oath of the covenant. And to ratify this covenant, we see Moses make sacrifices here. And he takes half the blood and puts it at the base of the altar. And the other half of the blood, he sprinkles upon the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. What message was that sending to them? Well, very similar to that message that we saw with God passing through the, the sacrifice on either side. They're, they're recognizing here uh, that God, in essence, is saying, you now belong to me as surely as that sacrifice on the altar belongs to me. I'm giving you an opportunity to be a living sacrifice. But if you violate the covenant, then you're going to have to take this sacrifice's place. And so we see the solemnity of this sacrifice being driven home to them through this blood of the covenant. And if you continue to read in verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate And drink. And so they make this sacrifice and they confirm the covenant by sprinkling the blood of the covenant on the people, driving home the commitment that they're making and the consequences of violating it, and then they eat with the Lord. They they go up and they have this covenant meal in the presence, in the manifest presence of God. Are you starting to see some parallels here? Now when we go to Matthew and we go to 1 Corinthians and we hear this is the new covenant in my blood or this is the blood of the covenant, we have some frame of reference here for what he's talking about. Because the Lord's Supper is ultimately a continual reminder and constant renewal, recommitment to our covenant. When Jesus says this is the blood of the covenant, he's putting the Lord's Supper in the context of this covenant meal. This is not just a memorial meal. This is not just a sacrificial meal. This is a continual reminder and recommitment to our covenant with the Lord. Jeremiah 31 talks about this new covenant. Not like the old covenant that Israel broke, but this new covenant will be written on our hearts. And a prerequisite to being in that covenant is going to be that we're going to have to know the Lord. But if we are part of that covenant, we can know that our sins will be cleansed through his grace. And so as we partake of the blood of the covenant, we are taking part uh, in that that ratifying sacrifice. Um, We're taking part in the blood of the covenant that was shed on the cross to make this relationship possible. And we're declaring ourselves to be living sacrifices and yet recognizing that if we are living in rebellion to the covenant... That we are guilty of the blood on the altar. That we're guilty of the blood on the cross. And that we deserve to take its place. Do you see how serious this is? As we are remembering the blood of our covenant, we are recognizing that if we're not partaking of it in a worthy manner, if we're not properly renewing our commitment to the covenant if we're not living within that covenant, then we are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Then we deserve to be the one on the altar. The Lord's Supper is not just about solemn remembrance and thanksgiving. We saw there in 1 Corinthians 11, it is about self-examination and a renewal of our commitment to live as God's covenant people. That's part of the reason that the Corinthians were not doing well spiritually is because they weren't observing properly this constant recommitment and renewal and self-examination of their own relationship with the covenant through Jesus' blood. But another aspect of this meal is the idea of communion. We often call the Lord's Supper the communion. Why is that? What does that mean? Well, the word communion, very simply, just means fellowship. It means sharing. And we see throughout the New Testament that the Lord's Supper is meant to be shared. The Lord's Supper is not something that we see observed in an individual context. It's always something that we see them coming together to do. Acts 20 and verse 7. They came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 and 17, you see this emphasis in the teaching of the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The New King James uses the word communion there. Uh, The ESV says participation. We, We are communing together, sharing together, participating together in this communion meal. And so the Lord's Supper was always designed to be a communal observance. Something we share in, something we gather together for, something that brings us together. And if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 11 with me. Let's read again the context of Paul's instructions about the Lord's Supper here and the problems that this church in Corinth was having. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 20, he says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What's the problem here? Well, really, there's, there's two problems that he gets at. Uh, number one, they aren't eating together. Each one is taking his own meal. They, uh, this division that they're having in so many different areas is now showing up in something that was supposed to be a sharing. that was supposed to be a communion. But part of the problem as well is that they aren't eating for the right reasons. (laughs) Because if they were eating for the right reasons, then that would be something that they would be sharing in together. But they've made this into a self-indulgent feast. And this corruption of purpose, as they now are just kind of focusing on their own personal enjoyment in this, uh, is manifesting itself in a corruption of practice as well. Look what he then says at the very end of this chapter. In verse 33 and 34, it says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give in directions when I come. Here, he tells them, your purpose for eating this Uh, is not for your own hunger, not for your own personal enjoyment or your own personal fulfillment. Uh, You you need to be waiting for one another because the the real purpose here involves togetherness. The real purpose here involves communion and fellowship and sharing together. Now now certainly it is perfectly fine for us to break bread from house to house as we see the church doing in in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 in a, a social setting, showing hospitality to one another. Uh, he says here, you have homes to eat and drink in. If if, if we want to have some people over to the house and we want to eat together, wonderful, great. But he says, that's not what this is. What this is intended to be is you are to be discerning the body of the Lord, he says early. We're not to, to lose sight of what the true fellowship is. When we come together as a church, it's not to satisfy our physical appetites, not for food, not for entertainment, not for recreation. The communion, the fellowship that we share is not just us being fellow fried chicken lovers, right? The communion that we share is focused in on being fellow participants in the altar of the cross. Back in First Corinthians chapter 10, In verse 16 and 17, remember, that's what he talks about is the sharing. It's a sharing in the body. It's a sharing in the blood. And so we are fellow disciples, fellow workers, fellow citizens, fellow Christians, sanctified by the same blood, members of the same body. And brethren, when that is the focus of our fellowship, then the differences that we may have over social and economic status, over political leanings or racial and ethnic backgrounds or hobbies or interests or personalities, that all fades into the background. Because that's not what brings us together. When we make fellowship something that's just about social enjoyment, well, maybe you and I don't have the same hobbies. Maybe we don't have the same interests. Maybe we don't think the same way about this or that in the world around us. But when we make fellowship and communion what it's supposed to be, Its focus is in our common relationship with the Lord. Everything else fades in the background because we serve the same king. Because our allegiance is to the same kingdom. Because we belong to the same Lord and Savior. And so you remember back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You know, certainly there are many different aspects of Christian fellowship. We see that word used as it talks about them sharing in the evangelistic work and providing for Paul's needs as he goes out and preaches the gospel. And as we share in the work of the Lord in any way, as we have fellowship in singing praises to God, as we have fellowship in praying, as we have fellowship in serving one another's needs, um, all of that is, is this Christian fellowship. But... But when he says they devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread, I think we need to recognize those things are not very far apart. In fact, he, if you wanted to, you could be referring to the exact same thing. Because that word fellowship is the word communion. You might as well say they were devoting themselves to the communion and the breaking of bread. And so certainly, among other things, there's no question that one of the central aspects of the fellowship and communion that they were having was the Lord's Supper Itself, Sharing in the altar, sharing in the sacrifice, sharing in the the cleansing blood of Jesus. And so in communion and breaking the same bread, we are proclaiming and reaffirming our fellowship with one another. That doesn't come from worldly things. It comes from being fellow citizens, fellow disciples, fellow members of the family of God. And to the ancients, eating a meal together was a clear sign of fellowship. You can see this throughout the scripture, all the way back in Exodus. Um, I'm sorry, that's supposed to be Genesis uh, 43 and verse 32. We see uh, that the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews uh, because it was an abomination to them. When Joseph's brothers come to uh, Pharaoh's house, they're not able to, to eat together. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7. That when David wants to reach out to Jonathan's descendant Mephibosheth and show his kindness to him, he doesn't just give him a bunch of gifts. He says, you're going to eat at my table. That means we're going to have fellowship with one another. You're going to be part of my house. Uh, In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 and 11, the, the scribes and Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And that's why later on they say he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's having fellowship with them. In Acts 11, verse 2 and 3, we see that when Peter in Acts 10 goes in and preaches to Cornelius and his household, it says in Acts chapter 11 that some of of the circumcision came up to Peter and said, why did you you go in to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? What's the problem that they have? Well, he had fellowship with them. He went in and he ate with them. And so when Jesus institutes his memorial as a meal that is intended to be shared, he's making a statement. Jesus is not only reminding us of his sacrifice. He's not only reminding us of our deliverance. He's not... Only reminding us of our commitment to the covenant. He is also reminding us of the unity and the fellowship that we are intended to have through him with one another. And this fellowship that we are being reminded of and that we are declaring is ultimately with Jesus himself and with all his apostles. While while I do think we see throughout the scriptures that God did intend for the Lord's Supper to be a communal activity, something that we do when we come together, uh, I think we need to recognize that we're not just declaring our fellowship with the people in this physical location, not just declaring our fellowship with the people within these four walls. Ultimately, we're declaring our fellowship with all of God's people, all of God's family, and most importantly, God himself. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 that we read earlier says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Who is Paul talking about there? Is Paul just talking about the church in Corinth? Well, no, he says we, including himself. And Paul is hundreds of miles away as he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And so we're not just reminded of our unity with the people in this physical locality. We are reminded of our unity and our fellowship with all people who break the one bread, who are part of the one body, who are keeping this memorial feast. And so as we gather on the Lord's day to partake of this memorial feast, um, we are communing with people across the globe, with brethren in Guatemala and Zimbabwe and Italy and Russia uh, and the Philippines. We all, by taking part of this memorial feast, are declaring our our fellowship together. And in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 21, uh, Paul uses the metaphor of the table of the Lord. He says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This this picture of of the Lord's table really brings to our mind this imagery of spiritually us, us sitting down at the table with the Lord. Him being at the head. And we see in Matthew 26, in verse 29, as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, there there may be some foreshadowing there of the ultimate marriage feast that we look forward to uh, when all of God's kingdom gets to go home to be with him in the presence of his throne. But I think most directly, Jesus' initial application here is that he will commune in this memorial feast with us in the kingdom as he communes from his throne. Uh, in Luke 22, verse 15 and 16, we had talked about last week where he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When the Passover becomes the new covenant Passover, the Lord's Supper, Jesus promises that he will be eating with us. And so as we partake of the communion, we are reminded of what brings us together. Our common fellowship with the Lord. That he himself is sitting at the head of the table and we by his grace are able to to sit at seats with him. You know, brethren, in a time of division and confusion and chaos and strife in the world around us, the Lord's Supper reminds us what is most important. It reminds us what draws us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that in the kingdom of Christ there is no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer Greek and barbarian. There's no longer black or white or slave or free or male or female. But we are all equally citizens of one kingdom. We're all able to have this unity because God in his grace has given us a seat at his table. Brethren, that's what we need to come back to more than anything. The world and its conflicts and its struggles is trying to tear us apart. But when we come together, we are reminded of what brings us together. That we are able to be part of the family of God. That we are those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we can take joy in that. We can express our praise and thanksgiving in that as we take part in this communion feast, this covenant meal, this memorial and sacrificial meal within the Lord's Supper. Rick's going to lead us in a song here in just a moment. But but I hope by spending time looking at these aspects of the Lord's Supper, we can develop a deeper appreciation for all that God intends this to be for us as Christians. This is not and never should be uh, a checklist item on our to-do list in our assembly. That, oh yeah, we need to make sure we do that. No, this is the memorial. (laughs) This is what God has instituted for us, that we can be reminded of our deliverance from the bondage of sin, of the atoning sacrifice and the life-giving blood, of the blood of the covenant that we've committed to, to be living sacrifices on that altar for the Lord, and to the fellowship and communion that we share through Jesus Christ as our King, as being part of His kingdom. So let's keep that in mind, not just today as we've taken the Lord's Supper, but every week as we continue to come together as God has directed us. Let us not let that lose its significance and importance for us.